Um, all right, so we're getting near the end. We're getting near the, the climax of this. And as you'll see, we've worked our way up and then we'll get into it, the, the millennium next, next time I'm here, um, which will actually be in two to three weeks uh, due, due to the way the schedule is going to fall. Um, as I'll be in Guatemala next week, and then the week after we will have a, a business meeting. So on August 13th, we'll get to that millennium, the 20th, and then we'll do the 21st on August the 20th, and then we should finish up chapter 22 on August 27, uh, if everything works out well. But we're in 19 tonight, and this is kind of a two-part. It's kind of the anticipation, again, of God's judgment, and then we'll see, um, we'll see the rider on the white horse. We'll see... Uh, Jesus coming in now again as we've looked at this book this letter and again as, as we think all the way back to the beginning it is uh, prophetic it is apocalyptic it is a letter it is a lot of things rolled into one many times we don't know uh, the exact chronological order that John's doing these things did it happen in sequential order most of the time most scholars say it did not happen in perfect sequential order. Uh, is it, and we'll even look at a verse tonight, is when John is talking about it, is it now or is it futuristic that he's talking about some of these things? So it, it is tough, again, as we try to piece a lot of this together, and that's that's why we've said in, in the end, and this, look, it is the whole Bible. It's not just now. It's, it's the whole Bible. Uh, what, what we read into it is Jesus. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is victorious. And those that put their faith in Jesus will be victorious in the end as well. You can get that out of Judges as you read the book of Judges. You can get it out of Ezekiel. And we, we see it uh, here in Revelation. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. And we get his coming there in the Gospels. And this is talking about not the end of eternity, uh, but the, the end, the last battle here. So let's jump into this because it's a bit of a long chapter. After this, I heard what seemed to be, remember that's kind of a common thing in Revelation. It's what seemed to be, what appeared to be, what looked like, what sounded like. So it lets us know that we, it doesn't have to be 100%. But after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this Babylon, and, and it's not, it, it, again, there are a lot of different um, beliefs on it. Was it particular? Was it Rome? Some people, you know, said that Rome was Babylon from the Old Testament. But what we, what most, <clears throat> excuse me, at least conservative commentators will say on this, it's a, it's a world system. Uh, and it's just basically anything opposed to Jesus Christ. It is this world system based on financial uh, gain and financial profit or, or go pursuing passions that are opposite uh, of serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it, it, look, it's what goes on today in the world. It is this system. So that is Babylon. And so we see the end here, this great prostitute who had corrupted the whole earth with her immorality and has avenged her blood on the servants. And this choir, this great choir that he thinks he's hearing cries out hallelujah and the smoke goes up 
uh, goes up from her forever and ever. And that means it's over. There is no turning back. There is no other chance for repentance at this point. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down. We've talked about that in past lessons. And worshiped God who was seated at the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now on your, uh, on your notes there, we've, we've got some things. I would like to read a lot of this Old Testament passages tonight to kind of make sense of this. So we, we won't uh, spend too much time here. Some people, some, some commentators say that verse 5 is Jesus talking here. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. And then they get into the parsing of, would Jesus say, praise our God? And, you know, then it goes back to some people say, well, he, he did say things like this. So, again, that, that's up to you. I don't think it's worth really uh, fighting over too much. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. There's several Old Testament uh imagery here when it comes back to the the water but we're not going to chase that too much tonight now seven and eight gets a little bit tough and so we'll spend a little bit more time there let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready now you know the lamb is is jesus and the church is his bride it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, this gets tough because when you when you read it just on the surface, it, it appears that it could have a works-based theology to it here. Uh, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride's made herself ready. All right, that's fine. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So does that mean that our deeds are rewarded? Our, our deeds are made righteous. Our deeds are those white linen. And look, you've heard it here preached enough over the last 40 years that you understand this. It's, it goes basically to the book of James. Show me your faith and I'll show you works. Uh, he says, you know, he, he says it, that faith without works is useless but that doesn't mean that our works save us. That doesn't mean that these people are made righteous by their deeds. It means their faith in Jesus Christ produces works, produces these righteous acts. So, uh, and if you look at your notes there, I put it in there. The bride clothes, the bride clothes herself with bright, pure, fine linen. So the existence of Babylon, this is kind of, you know, was necessary for the bride for purity. Righteous deeds could be a reference to verse 10 in the testimony of Jesus. We'll look at that in a second. And the persevering of their faith during the persecution. But let's go to that thought there that, the, that this existence of Babylon was necessary for the purity of the bride, as uh, a lot of the commentators say. Well, it goes back to that argument that we've talked about here before. We must have God's wrath to have his love. We must understand that God is a God of wrath to truly understand his love. If there was nothing he was angry at, there would be nothing to be saved from. But when we understand God's wrath, we understand that in his 
righteousness, his love for us by sending his son, that showed his love for us. And so Babylon, this world system, there would nothing to be pure from if it wasn't this, this worldliness. But since we have Babylon, since we have this world system or this worldliness, then, then Christ's people, his chosen ones, the church, are made pure, not by anything they do, but by putting their faith and trust in him. And, and then obviously there's the persevering of the saints there during this persecution this, that's going on. And you know, as, as Baptists, we believe in the persevering of the saints, which basically means once you are a child of God, you are forever a child of God. You cannot lose your salvation uh, because if you can lose it, then how do you know if you'll ever keep it? And it goes back to the same thing as earning it. You can't earn it because if you could earn it, you could lose it. So it, it goes to this, this persevering here, the ones that have persevered to the end of this, this millennial reign or this thing that's going on here, that these saints, and it goes back up to the blood of his servants that were avenged in verse two. And we, it's, it's just, again, it's hard for us to figure out all of this. We don't know if it means all martyrs past and present or if it means only during this time, but those that persevere to the end will be saved is what Jesus said. So I know the thoughts that automatically come up, does that mean those that don't persevere to the end are not saved? I mean, just by deduction, you would say that. So you say, well, what's, what's wrong with those people then? Then by, by my standard and by what I read the Bible is they never were saved. They never were children of God. If you don't persevere to the end, that doesn't mean you can't sin. doesn't mean you might not be wayward, be a prodigal at some point. But if you are a child of God, you will persevere to the end. I think it, I was listening to Alistair Begg today, and, and he, he, he says it like this, that disobedience, and I don't, I don't think he said the word righteousness, but I can't remember what he said. Assurance, that's what he said. Disobedience and assurance don't go hand in hand. In other words, if you are sure of your salvation and have full assurance, then there shouldn't be willful disobedience in your life. If you are sure of your salvation, you have 100% faith that you are saved by the grace of God, then you should be desiring to live for Jesus Christ. So and that's what he says. Disobedience does not produce assurance. Disobedience should produce questioning. Hey, am I really a child of God? Shouldn't there be some desire for me to live for Jesus Christ? So here in seven and eight, and, and actually starting in six and going to the end there till 10, we have this marriage supper of the lamb. Now there's gonna be, there's, there's more than one feast that we'll talk about, but let's move on to nine because I'm gonna run out of time. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This is the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophecy. So just one other thought on this before we move on. This, this lamb, this inviting here, right? This blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb who are, in other words, who are invited 
to have eternal life with Jesus. Now, again, we don't want to get too much into the parsing of the words here. The Bible is very clear on this, that Christ died for all sins. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believe in Him, at the same time, those who are going to be at the, the, the marriage of the Lamb are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And again, I, I hate to keep quoting Alistair Begg, but he's kind of my favorite preacher now. And, and I do want to give him credit. He said, you know, sometimes you're invited to certain things. And they have rules that you must abide by. Dress code, in other words. You get these invitations in the mail and it's not, you don't have it much anymore where it's, um, what's the word for tuxedo? I'm drawing a blank. Black tie, okay, formal. Yeah, there's formal, there's black tie, there's, you know, dinner, there's after five or five o'clock, there's all these things, business, business casual, all these things that have instructions on there. Now, most places will not kick you out if you if you don't abide it, but some will. Some, you know, will say, hey, you know, this is not casual, not business casual, this is a black tie event. Or at least you're gonna stick out if you go. And that is, the Bible's very clear. If you go back to the parable in Luke, to the, the wedding feast, the banquet, and, and who what clothes it takes, what attire it takes, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so not just anybody gets in to the supper, not just anybody makes it in. And Jesus is very clear. Some of you are gonna say in the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all this? And he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you because you didn't put your faith and trust in me. You put all your faith in your own righteousness. And that's not what gets us there. So then, let's go to verse 11, because we have this beginning. We've got this rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing in the first part? Because they know the judgment's coming. That's why the saints are rejoicing. That's why this choir in heaven's rejoicing. They know this time, this persecution's over. And they're like, oh, we've, we've waited all this time. It's over. And so then there's this interlude here with the marriage supper, and then we get to the end. We get to where we see the conquering hero, and this is where in a movie you'd be like, yes, I didn't think he's going to make it back. And he came back, you know. It's, you know, y'all people like my age grew up watching Rambo and all that stuff, you know. Like, you know, when Rambo comes back, you're like, oh, he's about to get him now. And so I don't want to ever compare Jesus to Rambo. I'm not doing that. I'm just telling you that the, the, the celebration here in the first part of 19 is like, hey, this is over. We have endured. And now Jesus is coming. And he says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. By the way, the white horse and all the old movies, black symbolized evil and all the old westerns, and if you know you wore the white hat, it was good. But here, the, the white means righteousness, okay? More than likely, or purity. Um, it, it means a reward for purity and vindication for your purity. So then I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So we obviously know that Jesus is and was faithful and true. Um, and so we won't spend too much time on that. But his eyes, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head 
are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now scholars, and we're not going to get into the weeds here, but some scholars have chased that very last part. What does he mean by a name that he doesn't know but himself? But the royal diadems we, we kind of understand is this. Jesus is the King of Kings. There, there talks of, there's talk of diadems throughout the book of Revelation and different people wear diadems. But here it says that Jesus um, wore many diadems. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, now what does that mean? All right. Uh, let's, let's flip to that Old Testament stuff here, Fish, if you will, passages. Isaiah 62, if we can get some of that up. And then uh, I think it's, I think that's all Isaiah 19. And, no, I'm sorry. It's Isaiah 62 and then the other two are Revelation. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem is on the hand of your God. You shall uh, no more be termed forsaken, and you shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married and then verse 5 says for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as that the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you so we see the passage here that John is drawing from and again it illustrates how everything starting with Genesis points to Jesus and, and this, this passage, and there's several passages here. It's, it's linked to 1912. It's also linked back to 217 and that we get there. Now, to the no one knows his name part, we put some stuff, I put some stuff in there for you. Could it be the judgments? Uh, in other words, these judgments that are coming during this thousand years, Nobody knows exactly what they're going to look like. Could that be what, the, what John is talking about here? We don't know that for sure. It could be the fact that, especially starting back in Old Testament times, that people would not, not pronounce the word, word Yahweh. They wouldn't write it. In fact, that's where we get YHWH, because they would leave the, what we call E's out, the, the vowels out, because they did not want to spell out God's entire name. And they would not pronounce it because they... they they just believed that God's glory was too much to pronounce his name or to say his name or to spell it out. So it could be that. It could be that just God is sovereign over all of the earth. We don't know for sure uh, on that one. But it, again, for those of you that like, like to chase rabbits, that's a good one you can come up with and, and give me your answer on that. And so then it says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this is the uh, the allude, allude, it's alluding to the judgments of the nations. You remember the Babylon and all this stuff we're going through. His robe is dipped in blood, and uh, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now there's different names in here. You're going to see Jesus is called different names throughout this passage here. But here we get that his name is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. Uh, again, for those of you that like to chase things, is this army angelic? 
or is it humans? Uh, you can get back to me on that one as well. Uh, we don't have time to chase that one. But this army of heaven's coming out. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. Now, here, uh, Fish, we'll go ahead and start looking at those verses there in verse 15, what all it is alluding to. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. It could be literal. Uh, most of the commentators I read believe, you know, this sharp sword is the word of truth, which is his word. Uh, let's just read this, and this is where John's getting these from, uh, starting in Isaiah 11, 4, I think it is, catfish. And then we'll go to 49.2. But with the righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Isn't it amazing? You can go on to the next one, Fish. Isn't it amazing how Isaiah wrote this thousands of years before this happened? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And then Psalm 63, 2 through 6, say this, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads his winepress? And uh, let's see. Can we keep going, fish? Freezing up. That's all right. That's all right. Um, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. This is going back to that verse there. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So on my own, brought my own arm brought my salvation, and my wrath upheld me. And then verse 6 says, I trampled down the peoples in my angers. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And then the last one is Psalm 2.9, um, where it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now that we've read all of that, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. So all of this comes from this backdrop that John knows through the prophet Isaiah and the psalmist. Now, did John know that by heart? Probably not. It was revealed to him during this, uh, this time that he was taken up. And so then we see there on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's just another name. We keep going back. We've got the Word of God. We've got the faithful and true. And now we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, what's the significance of this? And I'm running out of time. Um, on, his, on, on, a, on their thigh, and I put the uh, passages there. We won't have to go to them where during especially Old Testament times, that's where they would keep their swords. They would pull the sword out from the thigh. So it is significant. But also if you remember Jacob and some of the patriarchs, that's where they would place their hand to make vows on. So on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. 
come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, when you read that the first time, you're like, what in the world do birds have to do with anything? And in fact, I've read through this, I don't know how many times I've read through the Bible, and I've never paused reading that. And then when I got to it this week, it was like, okay, let's let's dive into this a little bit. But um, the, the gist of it here is this, is these, these birds of prey, these, these vultures, uh, and what do vultures do? They circle around when something is dead. And so this is to signify it's the end for this world system. It is the end for those who have not repented. It is the end for this anti-Christ system. And, and that's what we get to. Now, um, Ezekiel 39, four fish, and I think same chapter 17 through 20, just to give them a little bit. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel. You shall, I'm struggling tonight, of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beast of the fields to be devoured. And then I think verses 17 through 20, I think same chapter if I did that right. As for you, son of man, thus said the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you for a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. Uh, I think it's, is it through 20? Yeah. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats and bulls, and all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat uh, fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk. Eat in the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with the horses and charioteers with the mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. So the next time you're reading through Ezekiel and Isaiah, and you're like, oh, this is, I just don't get it. Understand this stuff. A lot of it jumps forward to the New Testament, especially here in um, in Ezekiel. I'm sorry, in Revelation. Now, and then uh, Psalm 2:2, if you will, fish, and that'll be the last one for the night for you. I throw way too much at you tonight. Um, it says here, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying. And apparently, I didn't give you all of that. Uh, but no, that, that's it. Actually, the beasts are going to gather. Uh, with these world armies. So that's what's going on here, all right? And so now let's finish it up. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. So the beast, as we've looked at, we've got the beast and Antichrist and all this, they are gathering up the world armies to make war against Jesus. And the beast was captured. And with it was the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. So we've got the beast and we've got the, the false prophet and they, they've been captured. And so these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So the judgment here is in two parts. It's first for them, they're captured and they're thrown into the lake of fire um, now, if, if you just read it on the surface, you think, well, that's the end for them. Now, we'll get into this next time we're together, but if you flip over to 2010, you shouldn't, have to, you shouldn't need fish for this. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that goes to show you, these people that believe in annihilation is not real. These people that think, hey, when we go into the ground, that's it. No, it, we're eternal beings. We'll end on that in one second. So these two were thrown in the live in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, now these are the followers, the one that they had deceived, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. This again goes back to most people think it's the word of God. You think when Jesus, at the, you know, when he was about to be crucified and they come to him and he goes, I'm Jesus and all those people fell out. And that's what, you know, dad's taught me for years that if you're going through spiritual warfare, just start saying the name of Jesus and start singing the name of Jesus because demons can't take his name and they quake at the presence of his name. And so some scholars believe that it, it is a literal sword, but others believe it is by his, his word and his, his testimony. The, the sword is through his truth, just through the mentioning of his name that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The birds were full from eating all of the flesh. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna get into this 10,000 years, this millennium, and we're gonna wrap up this fight here uh, in a couple of weeks, but I want us to go back to this one thought and we're done because I'm out of time. I'm over time. And the devil would deceive them was thrown in the lake of fire and the sulfur with the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And here's, here's what I want us to get, I want us to take from this tonight. If we, if we read Revelation, man, if you just sit down and read it and, and I'll back up. If you put it on audio and listen to Revelation, you're not going to get much. I'm just gonna tell you, you're gonna hear it and be like, what did he just say? It makes no sense. Now when you read it, just reading